This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this talk at the NiceAce Advancement Conference in April of 2017, Dr. Andrew Solomon discusses his fascinating, award-winning book, Far From the Tree, Children, Parents, and the Search for Identity. When I was born deaf, my mother cried. She really did not see a future. The doctor said he would never amount to anything, his mental capacity would be little to none, and you should probably give him up and think about adoption. I really didn't even know that something was going on, that there was something wrong in my mind. I didn't know the word transsexual, the word transgender hadn't even been invented yet. He has a mentor that helps him. No biting, Chris. Right. Chris probably had one of the worst diagnoses ever. Self-injurious, uh, swollen intestines, poisons in his system, mental retardation, severe autism. And I was pretty much told to, to put him in an institution. When I was born, my mom refused to see me for three days. She was scared. Before I transitioned, I, I just wasn't all there. I couldn't quite um, share my feelings. I couldn't quite um, be a, a full member of the family. You sort of get what you get and you go from there and you know it's your choice. You want to make the best of it? You make the best of it. You want to make the worst of it? Throw yourself a pity party. I set out to write a book which was about how people found meaning in difficulty. It's hard for the kids to accept themselves. It's hard for their families to accept them. It's hard for the larger society to accept the kids and their parents. All of it is a struggle. I wouldn't ever want to pretend that these aren't difficult lives. They are very difficult lives. They're full of pain and complexity. We have joints and bones that are twisted and distorted. So our life is marred with a lot of surgeries. Myself, I've had 30. And there was one guy that I had a crush on. He said to me, why do you live? And my heart would crush. Chris did not communicate. He didn't sit down. He didn't put on clothes. He wouldn't go outside. He ate the walls. He ate the table. He ate the rug. I could feel the back of my neck, you know, um, popping and sizzling. Like my head was just heating up. We couldn't eat in the home. We couldn't have lights on. We couldn't have the TV on. If I coughed, he would run downstairs and punch me. I actually felt that I was a surgeon, and I felt I had to to literally extricate the demon from inside of my body. When I started this book, I knew that I was going to be looking at a lot of desperate situations. And I would do that by cutting and burning myself. What I didn't know was how much joy I was going to find. When I was born, my dad said, he looks cute. He's just got a big head and little arms. The funny thing is, I still look that way. And the relief that came over my face when I, when I heard that there was a name to what was going on with me. I used what God gave me. God gave, didn't give me, you know, legs to run. He didn't give me arms to play football with. He gave me a brain and he gave me a heart, and I try to use both of those things to the fullest. The thing I've learned most over the years is to be a parent first. I thought to myself, if he's happy, if he stops hurting himself, you know, if I could hug him, that that would be the greatest gift in life. It's 
kind of pretty sure that I'm going to have obstacles, but I would have had them anyway. I know my dad was very, very proud of me because I went on a journey that he never dreamed possible. I don't think of myself as a schizophrenic. I am Susan. There really isn't any definition of what's normal or not normal or far from the tree or right under the tree. I'm lucky to have had her in this particular period of I'm time. In Thank you. The love that parents have for their children. I guess we are pretty lucky, huh? Yeah, can see them through an enormous amount. Um, anyway, thanks to everyone uh, for coming, uh, and what a pleasure to be here. Even in purely non-religious terms, homosexuality represents a misuse of the sexual faculty. It is a pathetic little second-rate substitute for reality, a pitiable flight from life. As such, it deserves no glamorization, no rationalization, and above all, no pretense that it is anything but a pernicious sickness. That's Time Magazine in 1966, when I was three years old. And as we all know, the last presidency saw in the law of gay marriage across the land, which I hope will last. And I set out to do my investigation, determined to understand how that happened. How did a condition that was universally understood to be an illness come instead to be considered an identity. And if the identity of gayness could come out of the illness of homosexuality, then what other illnesses were there waiting in the wings with the thought of becoming identities? When I was six years old, I went with my mother and my brother to buy shoes at Indian Walk Shoes, a store some of you may remember. Um, at Indian Walk Shoes, and after we'd had our shoes fitted, the salesman said to us that we could each have a balloon to take home with us. And my brother wanted a red balloon, and I wanted a pink balloon. And my mother said that she thought I'd really rather have a blue balloon. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I really wanted the pink one, and she reminded me that my favorite color was blue. <laughs> The fact that my favorite color now is blue, <laughs> but I'm still gay, <laughs> will give you some sense of a mother's influence and its limits. <laughs> when I was growing up, my mother used to say all the time, the love for your children is unlike any other feeling in the world. And until you have children, you don't know what it feels like. And when I was very little, I took that as a great compliment. It meant that bringing up my brother and me had been the great satisfaction of her life, and I took it very much to heart. But when I was an adolescent and she said it, it made me anxious because I thought, but I think I'm gay. And if I'm gay, I probably can't have children. And after I came out in my early 20s, when she said it, it made me very angry. And I would say, that's not the path I'm on and you know it. I want you to stop saying that. But she never did. 
the love for your children is unlike any other feeling in the world. And until you have children, you don't know what it feels like. In 1994, my editors at the New York Times Magazine assigned me an article about deaf culture. And I was very taken aback, in the first place because I had mostly been doing international reporting. But my editor said to me, this is a foreign society in our own midst. And also because I thought of deafness at that point as entirely a disability. These poor people, they can't hear, what can we do to help them? And then I went out into the deaf world. I met Jackie Rolfe, whom you saw in the video the first day. I entered into households where the alarm clock flashed a light instead of making a sound. I went to deaf clubs. I went to deaf theater. I even went to the Miss Deaf America contest, which took place in Nashville, Tennessee, where everyone complained about that slurry southern signing. <laughs> and as I went deeper and deeper into the deaf world, I arrived at a clearer and clearer sense that deafness really was a culture. It was a culture oriented around the shared use of sign language. And I discovered not only that it was a culture, but also that it was a beautiful culture and a very attractive one. And I remember walking into a meeting at the National Association of the Deaf, and there must have been a thousand people in a kind of gigantic hotel ballroom, and there were conversations flying off the ends of everyone's hands. And I remember thinking, I wish I were deaf. Which is not to say that I wished I couldn't hear. My hearing is very useful to me and I wouldn't want to be without it. But in that room, I was on the outside and they were on the inside. And though I could have spent years trying to master sign language, it was a culture based on the fact that they were deaf and I would never have been able fully to be part of it. And then I discovered that most deaf children are born to hearing parents. That those hearing parents, time out of mind, have tried to get their children to function in the perceived mainstream by placing a big focus on um, uh, spoken language and lip reading. And that many of those children discover deaf culture in adolescence or thereafter when it comes as a great liberation to them. And I thought how similar that was to the story of gay kids who are mostly born to straight parents who mostly have tried, historically at least, to get them to function in what they perceive as the mainstream world, and many of whom find liberation when they discover gay identity in adolescence or thereafter. And then a friend of a friend of mine had a daughter who was a dwarf, and she began asking questions that began to feel very familiar. Should I bring her up to think she's just like everyone else but rather short? Or should I try to give her some sense of dwarf identity, get involved with the little people of America, take her to support groups? And as she narrated her bewilderment, I thought, here it is again. Here it is again, a situation in which a family that perceives itself to be normal has a child whom they perceive to be abnormal in some profound and fundamental way. And it was then that I began to hatch the idea that became a defining one in my work, that there are really two kinds of identities. There are what I've called vertical identities that are passed down generation to generation. So your um, ethnicity, your nationality, um, uh, your language most of the time, um, often your religion. These are things that get passed down from parent to child. And some of those identities carry difficulties with them. It is easier in the United States, as it's currently construed, <coughs> in most contexts it is easier to be white um, and um, uh, to be uh, 
to, to be Christian. Um, but there is no one doing experimental genetics work to assure that the next generation of children born to Latino or Asian or African-American parents come out with blonde hair and blue eyes. And there's no great movement to say that whole memberships of religions need to go through instant conversions. We recognize that the problem is in the society and we attempt to address it at the societal level and move toward acceptance and openness and appreciation for difference. But then there are also what I've called horizontal identities. Horizontal because they have to be learned from a peer group. So these are identities like being gay or deaf or a dwarf, like having Down syndrome or autism or multiple severe disabilities, like being a child who is a prodigy, who is perhaps less sad for his parents but no less confusing and no uh, easier to bring up. How do we deal with um, children who were conceived in rape, who have in effect an identity that they may themselves not know about but that creates an impediment to the ordinary functioning of family love? I looked at families of kids who commit crimes and families of people who are transgender. And as I looked across all of those categories, I was struck time and again by the fact that there had always been attempts to cure or address these problems, sometimes wisely, sometimes somewhat less wisely. And I also realized that parenting involves two essential skills. You change your children. That's part of parenting. You have to change your children. You have to educate them. You have to try to give them a moral compass. You have to try to give them some manners, if you possibly can. Um, if you didn't change your children, that would be neglect. But you also need to celebrate your children and make them feel terrific about exactly who they are. And some things really clearly need to be changed, and some things really clearly need to be accepted and celebrated, and a lot of things fall in a foggy middle. And one of the big tasks of parenthood is sorting out which are the things that need to be changed, which are the things that need to be accepted, what is the degree of all of that. And I also, as I was doing this work, came to realize that there is a difference between love and acceptance. Love is something that is ideally there from the minute a baby is born. And while we've all heard stories of abuse and neglect, I believe that most parents love their children. But acceptance is a process, and it takes time, and it always takes time. It takes time even when there aren't any of these obvious challenges going on. And so I became very taken with that idea, and I was very struck um, by uh, the question of how acceptance unfolds, that um, uh, you need personal acceptance, familial acceptance, and social acceptance, and each of them feeds the other. And when there's good social acceptance, it's easier for a family to accept a child who is different. But when the child has good self-acceptance, that also facilitates the family's acceptance. And the parents I met seemed to go through these stages. They seemed to start out bewildered and sometimes angry. They then went through a period of gradually striving toward acceptance, and then eventually they got to acceptance and sometimes even to celebration of the ways in which their children were different. And as I looked at those processes, <coughs> I was struck over and over again um, by, how much of a, uh, by how much of a process that uh, getting to acceptance really is. And I was struck that this doesn't go in a plain linear fashion, that parents get to acceptance and celebration, and then there's a medical setback where they're in a socially stigmatized situation, and they're right back at being angry or bewildered all over again. It's a long lifetime's journey.
So I'm going to tell you about a few of the people who are in the book, and I will start with the story of Clinton Brown, who is the dwarf you saw in the video. Clinton has a condition called diastrophic dwarfism. Some dwarfing conditions only make you small. Others can come with many other disabilities. As he said, his has uh, resulted in a great many disabilities. His mother described to me how when he was born, what she was actually told was that he wasn't going to live very long and that she might as well leave him at the hospital to die quietly. And she thought about it and decided, no, that's my baby and I'm going to take my baby home and I'm going to do whatever I can, and if he dies in the next few months, at least I'll know I tried my best. So she brought him home, and she started going to see doctors, and she went to see doctor after doctor, and every one of them would say, you're going to have this problem, you're going to have that problem, are you prepared for this, you'd better watch for that, do you know, can you find, and so on and so forth. And finally, when he was a year old, despite it being a pre-internet period, and despite her not having vast educational or um, uh, financial resources, she discovered that the best doctor for the treatment of skeletal dysplasias in the United States was Stephen Kopetz at Johns Hopkins. And she took Clint down to see Dr. Kopetz, and she described it for all of these doctors with all of the dire things they had described, how this one leaned down, picked up the baby, held him up to the light and said, let me tell you, that's going to be a handsome young man one day. And I think it's terribly important to remember that the attitudes of doctors and also the attitudes of educators um, are incredibly significant in affecting um, the entire trajectory for people like this, for families like this, for anyone dealing with any alien form of difference. Well, in the course of his childhood, as he said in the video, he had 30 major surgical procedures, as a result of which he actually can now walk um, uh, uh, quite adeptly. But while he was having the surgeries, he was stuck in the hospital for long periods of time. And because some of them were spinal surgeries, he was completely immobilized for stretches of up to three months. And he thought, well, there's nothing else very much to do here, so I might as well do my schoolwork. So he did. He focused on his schoolwork, and he did really well with it. In fact, he did better with his schoolwork than anyone in his family had ever done before. And he eventually became the first member of his family to go to college. And he joined a fraternity. He went to Hofstra, not far from where his parents lived. Joined a fraternity and got a specially fitted car that could accommodate <coughs> his tiny frame so that he was able to drive around. And one day I got a call from his mother. And she said, I was driving home from shopping and I went past a bar, and there was Clinton's car parked outside a bar. She said, and I thought to myself, he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall, two beers for them is four beers for him. She said, I wanted to go in there and interrupt, but I knew I couldn't do that. So I drove home and left him 11 messages on his voicemail. <laughs> She said, and then I thought, if someone had told me when he was little that my future worry would be that he would go drinking and driving with his college buddies, I'd have been so pleased to have that problem. And I said to her, what do you think you did? What do you think you did that allowed a child for whom there was such a dire prognosis, um, for whom there seemed to be no hope at all, to turn out as someone who's popular, and accomplished, and successful, and happy. And she said, what did we do? We loved him, that's all. 
Clinton just always had that light in him. And we were fortunate enough to be the first to see it there. I'll tell you about one other, um, uh, uh, one other dwarf who I got to know. This was someone called Kiki Peck. Kiki Peck has kinesis dysplasia, which is another quite disabling dwarfing condition. It affects cartilage and means that uh, children effectively have bad arthritis from, um, from the time they're born. It affects the development of the eye and impairs vision, has many other complicating effects. And Kiki Peck was growing up in Michigan and her mother one day had to call her children in and tell them that she had breast cancer. And she said, they think I'm going to be fine, but I'm going to need chemotherapy and I'll need to shave my head um, because I'm going to lose my hair. And Kiki said, well, I'll help you shave your head. So she said, okay. And Kiki helped shave her mother's head. And when she was finished, she said, and now I'll shave my head. Her mother said, what are you talking about? Why on earth would you do that? And Kiki, who was nine, said, I've spent a lot of time feeling different all by myself, and I know how lonely it can be. And I would like for you to have someone else who's different the same way you are at the same time. And I thought, this is not these two stories, Clinton and Kiki, these are not people who have ended up being remarkable despite having a difference or a disability. These are people who have become remarkable in the ways that they are precisely because of having a difference or a disability. I thought, how extraordinary, how extraordinary that that should happen. I'm gonna to quote to you from one other magazine from the 1960s. This is the Atlantic Monthly Journal of Liberal Opinion, um, a prominent American ethicist named Joseph Fletcher writing in 1967. He said, there is no reason to feel guilty about putting a Down syndrome child away. Whether it is put away in the sense of hidden in a sanitarium or in a more responsible, lethal sense. It is sad, yes, dreadful, but it carries no guilt. True guilt arises only from an offense against a person and a Downs is not a person. There's been a lot of ink given over the years to the shifting dynamics of gay rights in the United States. And people are profoundly aware that, um, uh, that there have been real shifts in the way we deal with gay people, but not enough attention has been spent on the ways in which we deal with difference altogether, on how much more accepting our society seems largely to have become over these last 30 years or more. People with Down syndrome now live twice as long as they did when Joseph Fletcher penned that article. Some of them are actors, some are writers, some live semi-independently, some get married. All of it represents an extraordinary series of changes. Someone I know who has worked with people with disabilities for many years described going out to lunch in LA with the actress with Down syndrome who appeared on the television program Glee, and she said, People were coming over and asking for her autograph. She was a celebrity first, and a person with Down syndrome second. I never dreamed I would live to see such a day. So Tom and Karen Robards, couple who I got to know, had their first child quite early and were very shocked when their child was born with Down syndrome. 
and over the years that immediately followed, they were very discontent with the educational opportunities available to their children. And so they eventually went to the Archdiocese of New York and asked whether they had any classrooms they could use. And they were given an abandoned lavatory that they could turn into a classroom. And with a few other parents with children with Down syndrome, they set up a classroom where they felt their children would learn better. And over the years, that classroom in a converted lavatory has turned into the Cook Center, which many of you have probably encountered. It's one of the leading institutions in the world for the education of people with intellectual disabilities and is part of what has brought about those transformations in the life possibilities and expectancies um, of people with Down syndrome. Um, and so I said to Tom and Karen, look, this has been your life. I said, do you wish it hadn't been? Do you wish you could make David's Down syndrome go away? Do you wish you'd never heard of the condition? And Tom Robart said, well, for David, I wish I could make it go away. Because for David, it's a difficult way to be in the world. And I would like to give him an easier life. But speaking more broadly, I think these people have something to tell us. And that if we were able to make all of the Down syndrome in the world go away, it would be a terrible loss. He said, so the personal wish and the social wish don't entirely align. And Karen Robart said, well, I'm with Tom. If I could change it for David, I would for David, because I would like David to have an easier life. She said, but speaking for myself, well, I would never have believed this 23 years ago when he was born. Speaking for myself, this has given me so much richer and so much more meaningful a life than I would ever have had otherwise. But speaking for myself, I wouldn't exchange these experiences for anything in the world. Now we live in a time of astonishing social progress when all of these forms of difference are gradually being engaged with and are coming increasingly um, uh, uh, to represent movements toward liberation. But we also live in a time of scientific progress. There is a cochlear implant which has become higher and higher functioning, which allows sound information to bypass the structures of the ear and go directly to the sound centers of the brain. Most children born deaf in the United States now will be given a cochlear implant. They are less and less likely to grow up in that signing world that I witnessed. A compound called BMN111 is developed by Biomarin Labs. It has been given to dwarves with the gene for chondroplasia, the most common uh, dwarfing condition. It blocks the action of that gene. Um, uh, laboratory animals given the drug grow to full size, and it's now being used in human children. And there are more and more blood tests that will identify genetic anomalies earlier and earlier and more and more easily, allowing parents who don't wish to carry through such pregnancies to terminate them. And I am a great believer in social progress, and I'm a great believer in medical progress. But I sometimes feel as though they're on a sort of strange crossed path in which they don't see each other. And sometimes when I look at these social triumphs and then read about the medical advances, I feel as though I'm at the end of one of those great operas in which the hero realizes he loves the heroine at the exact moment that she lies dying on a sofa. There's a question always about what it means to cure things and what it means to accommodate things and what needs to be fixed and what needs to be accepted, and there's a tense dynamic there. I felt it was nicely summed up 
by Jim Sinclair. He's an autism activist. He does not use spoken language. He writes uh, a little bit, but very powerfully. And he wrote an essay in which he said, when parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the autistic child I have did not exist. And I had another non-autistic child instead. Read that again. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. And this is what we know when you pray for a cure. That your fondest wish is that someday we will cease to be and strangers you can love will move in behind our faces. Now it's a very extreme point of view, but it does point to the idea that these differences become central to who people are and that to some extent when we talk about eliminating the difference, we are in many ways erasing the person and that person's experience. There's one family I got to know who had a daughter with autism and Cece has spoken three times in her life. She said nothing until she was seven and then one day her parents were sitting and watching TV and her mom stood up and turned it off and Cece said, I want the television on. And her parents looked at each other and waited for their world to be utterly transformed. She said nothing more for three years. And then she was at a school play with puppets and someone said, what color is the king's robe? And she said, it's purple. So she's spoken only three times and each time she's spoken, what she said has been appropriate to the situation that she was in. And as her mother said, to have a child who has never spoken is to go on thinking, well, perhaps she doesn't know what language is, perhaps she doesn't know what the world is. She said, to have a child who has spoken three times is to spend your life thinking, what else is in there that can't quite get out? And why did the traffic jam clear on those three occasions? And what can we do to make it clear again? And she worked and worked and worked at it. And finally, I saw her one day and she said to me, Cece is the ultimate Zen lesson. Why does Cece have autism? Because Cece has autism. And what is it like being Cece? Being Cece. It is what it is. It isn't anything else. And maybe you'll never change it. And maybe you should stop trying. And that question of what one does try and what one doesn't try again came to me. And I had a, a deaf friend who ended up helping me with some research for the book with whom I therefore spent a lot of time. And he wrote to me one night, while I'm pretty comfortable with my disability and don't see the cochlear implant as an evil plot that set out to destroy deaf culture, I do get a sense of impending extinction. He said, there will always be deaf people worldwide, but there's a real possibility that it'll be near eliminated in the developed world within the next 50 to 100 years. I say near because there will always be cultural holdouts, immigrants, untreatable conditions, but no more people like me. And I thought there was such loneliness ingrained in that statement, no more people like me. And I thought, how would we feel if we imagined a world in which there were no more people like us, in which there were no more Jews, or there were no more African Americans, or there were no more admissions directors? <laughs> it's a difficult thing to contemplate. Um, it really is. I thought there was a real loneliness in what he said, and I thought we're so often making these grand social changes without being aware of what the social changes are that we're making or what their ramifications really may be. 
So um, I saw all of these parents and I found them over and over again talking about their devotion to their children. And it seemed in some ways like a stretch, but I accepted that they were very devoted to those children. And then I worked on my chapter about people who commit crimes. And I interviewed Tom and Sue Klebold, the parents of Dylan Klebold, one of the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre, which as most of you will remember was in 1999, the worst school shooting in history, and which set the template for so much of the appalling violence we've seen since then. And I remember I kept trying and trying to get the Klebolds to talk to me, and they were very resistant, and we negotiated back and forth for almost three years. And then when I finally went out to talk to them, they were so full of their story that they couldn't stop telling it. And I remember sitting with them and saying to them that I wanted to understand what had happened. And they filled me in with detail after detail. And we recorded 20 hours of interviews in the course of our first weekend together. And on Sunday night, we were sitting in the kitchen. Sue was making dinner. We were all exhausted. And I said, if Dylan were here now, is there anything you'd want to ask him? And Tom said, there sure is. I'd want to ask him what the hell he thought he was doing. And Sue looked at the floor, and she thought for a minute. And then she said, I would ask him to forgive me for being his mother and never knowing what was going on inside his head. And a few years later, we were having one of many dinners we had, and I reminded her of that extraordinary thing that she'd said. And she said, you know, when it first happened, I used to wish I had never married, never had children. If I hadn't gone to Ohio State, I wouldn't have crossed paths with Tom. These children wouldn't have existed, and this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. She said, but over time, I've come to feel that I loved the children I had so much that I don't want to imagine a life without them, even at the price of this pain. When I say that, I'm talking about my own pain, of course, not the pain of other people. But life is full of suffering, and this is mine. So while I recognize that it would have been better for the world if Dylan had never been born, I've decided that it would not have been better for me. And I thought, where does this come from, this extraordinary business of these people feeling so attached to and so able to accept these children who are so far from anything that they intended when they set out to have children? And I realized that these parents are ch uh, parents of children whom we see as flawed, but that anyone who is a parent is the parent of a child who has some flaws. And if some glorious angel were to drop into the Mohonk Mountain House and offer every parent in this room the opportunity to exchange your children for other, better children, children who were more intelligent, more attractive, more polite, <laughs> that everyone would cling to the children they have and pray away that atrocious spectacle. And if all of us love our children with their many flaws, um, then it is not surprising in a way that these parents love children who have what seem to us to be bigger and more dramatic flaws, but who are flawed children nonetheless. And I also think that we not only take care of our children because we love them, but also love them because we take care of them. That the process of taking care of a child is immensely bonding, and that a lot of these kids um, have required an enormous amount of care. And so it should be no surprise that they are loved. But I also think love is not such a simple idea. 
and that um, it exists in the context uh, of many complexities. And I feel like the parents who did the best in my experience were the ones who were able to acknowledge that. So I spent time with the family, David and Sarah Hatton and their children. Their first son was born with multiple very severe disabilities, no control over motor movement, no ability to talk or indicate that he understood speech, blind, um, and they were told that it was a bizarre genetic fluke and that they should go ahead and have more children. So they had a second child who was fine, and then they had a third who had exactly the same syndrome as the first and they were determined to keep their children at home. And they did keep their children at home. And then finally, um, people who have no motor control are incredibly heavy and difficult to move around. And finally, Sue herniated a disc trying to lift one of them out of the bathtub. And they realized they had to put them someplace where there were more facilities to care for them. So they put them in a group home that was not far from where they lived in Connecticut. And they went to see them every day. And one day, the younger child was being given a bath by someone who worked in the um, group home who left him alone while she went to get some medicine, which she was explicitly not supposed to do. And when she came back, the harness he was in had given way, and he had slipped underwater, and he drowned. And I said to his parents at the time, I said, are you going to bring some sort of action? And um, Sarah Haddon said, you know, she said, there, are, there is so little payment given to the people who do the hands-on work with children like ours. It's such unbelievably hard work. She said, I don't want to do anything that would discourage other people from going into the field. So we've asked the court to ensure that this particular woman is never again allowed to work with disabled children because she is not responsible enough. She said, but I don't want to do something that will vastly disrupt everything. And at the internment of her son's ashes, she said, let me bury here the rage I feel to have been twice robbed. Once of the child I wanted, and once of the son I loved. And I thought that acknowledgement of the doubleness was so crucial to the understanding of who people are. You struggle against the difficulty and you love the child nonetheless. It happens in parenting everywhere. But I also thought, how can it be that so many of these people ended up so taken with children they would have done almost anything to avoid having? What was the process through which that happened? And another mother of two children with very severe disabilities said to me, people always give us these little sayings like, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. But children like ours are not preordained as a gift. They're a gift because that's what we have chosen. And I was very struck by that sense of volition, that sense of choice, that sense that people do make a decision about how they're going to respond to and engage with the children they have. There was an amazing study that was done a while ago in which a group of women who had just given birth to children with a range of disabilities were asked, do you think you will find meaning in this experience? And then the researchers went back to those families 10 years later. And the women who had anticipated finding meaning in the experience had children who were doing better on every possible clinical measure than the children of mothers who didn't see that. And that is not to sort of guilt out mothers who are not feeling, and I'm sorry, it's always mothers, but that's the way it goes. Um, not to guilt out mothers who are struggling, um, but to say that that process of looking for meaning is in some ways a volitional process, and that the people who do it end up learning a great deal 
from the process. I was struck as I, uh, as I did this work by the sense that people tend to recognize a particular difference they have and to feel as though they have something in common only with other people negotiating that particular difference. You know, did um, Clinton Brown's parents only have something in common with other people bringing up children with diastrophic dwarfism? That's a very small number of people. But actually, the negotiation of difference is something that every family has to do. None of us has ever met a parent who has not occasionally looked at his or her child and wondered what planet they descended from. <laughs> and the negotiation of difference is actually one of the things we have in common. And our differences in many ways are what unite us. I had a book party when this book was published and I invited as many of the people in it as I could to attend. And I got an email a couple of weeks later with a photo that showed the father of an autistic child, um, someone with schizophrenia, and a dwarf who had all gone out um, for uh, dinner together after meeting at the party. And they just said, you were right. We have a lot more in common than we'd have thought. And I also, as I did this work, came to be very struck by um, and very aware of the issue of mainstreaming and inclusion. And I have to say that it's been one of my bits of struggle some of the time with um, the New York private system is that there isn't very much of that involved, though there is some of it. I started off thinking inclusion programs were really great for these disabled kids who managed to be exposed to a higher level of education. Separate is never equal. Um, they therefore were being integrated. It was really terrific for them, but kind of a nuisance for the non-disabled kids who would get so slowed down in their classwork by having to accommodate someone. And having now spent a lot of time in inclusion classrooms, I think that the lessons in humanity that are taught to the children without disabilities in those classrooms, their ability then to feel at ease in the world and not frightened by difference is actually of much greater value than whatever the disabled children may be getting. And so I came to be a great believer in inclusion classrooms for the benefit of everyone who is in those classrooms. Now, I was in the middle of writing this book when I decided to have children myself. And friends of mine said, how can you be deciding to have children when you're in the middle of a book about everything that can go wrong? And I said, but it's not a book about everything that can go wrong. It's a book about how much meaning there can be in the experience even when everything seems to be going wrong. And rather than frightening me off of having children, it actually propelled me toward it. So I will describe my family in the simplest way that I can. My husband is the biological father of two children with some lesbian friends in Minneapolis. My best friend from college had gotten divorced but wanted to have a child, so she and I have a daughter together who lives with her mother and now stepfather in Fort Worth, Texas. And then John and I wanted the experience of bringing up a child full-time in our household. So we have George, of whom I'm the biological father. John is the adoptive father. We had an egg donor, and our surrogate was Laura, the lesbian mother of his two biological children. <laughs> Thank you. So the shorthand is six parents, four children, three states. <laughs> and there are people who seem to think that the existence of families such as mine somehow threatens the integrity of families such as theirs. And I don't accept those subtractive models of love, only additive ones. And I believe that in the same way we need species diversity to keep the planet going, that we need this diversity of affection to sustain the ecosphere of kindness. Now, 
The day that George was born was, of course, a very cheerful and wonderful day for us. And the following morning, the pediatrician came into the hospital room and said she was concerned. And we said, oh. And she said that she was concerned because he wasn't extending his legs correctly. And I said, huh. And she said, that could be a sign of significant neurological damage. And I said, what? And she said, and also, she said, insofar as he is extending them, he's doing so asymmetrically, which suggests the possibility of a mass in his brain. And by the way, he has a very large head and we should test him for hydrocephalus. And I felt my whole being pouring out onto the floor of that hospital. I had thought all along how ironic it would be if in the midst of doing this research, I became one of the parents of a disabled child. And I found in that moment, I thought, I admire these people, but I do not want to join their company. And we went off and we went to the MRI machine and we went to the CAT scanner and we went to another x-ray and we went for um, a, an arterial blood draw. And I thought, I've been doing this work for years. I've never heard of an arterial blood draw. What are they drawing his blood for? All of these things, one after the next. And I felt this heavy weight of despair in me. And I realized at a certain point that I felt that sense of despair because I was experiencing um, the reality that he might have an illness. And like most parents since the beginning of time, I wanted to protect my child from illness. But at some point during those hours of wandering from machine to machine, I realized that if he had any of the conditions we were testing for, they would be his identity. And if they were his identity, that they would be my identity too. And I suddenly heard this voice in the back of my mind that said, the love for your children is unlike any other feeling in the world. And until you have children, you don't know what it feels like. At the end of about five hours of all of this, uh, the pediatrician called us in, told us all the scans were clear, and said that George was now extending his legs exactly the way he should. And when I said, well, what do you think was going on this morning? She said he had probably had a cramp. <laughs> I think I think children really fully ensnared me in that moment when I associated fatherhood with loss, but I would never have noticed it if I hadn't been in the thick of the research for this project. I had encountered so much strange love, and I found myself falling into its bewitching patterns. I had wondered over and over again about these parents, and at some level had thought they were fools, signing themselves on to a lifetime's journey with these miserable children trying to breed identity out of suffering. And what I discovered that day in the hospital with George was that my research had built me a plank and I was ready to join them on their ship. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.